You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Colossae. He was concerned because he himself had not been there. They heard the gospel through others, and they were going through a time where there were many infiltrating the church, trying to lead the church down the road of believing a different kind of gospel. It was a big concern, and Paul, as he wrote this letter, wanted to diffuse that issue and uh, keep these new believers on track. It's important for us to, uh, even as a church today, with so much information, so much access to all kinds of uh, avenues of knowledge, it seems to me that many Christians are bombarded with mistruths and uh, those who are false uh, believers, false apostles, false teachers uh, who are teaching all kinds of things online, for instance, and uh, You can go on YouTube, you can go on all kinds of different media and find all kinds of stuff that is absolutely not true and contrary to the things that we believe and have been taught. This church has a history now of 23 years of existing and believing certain truths that we proclaim and teach. And our task as in this day is to keep us on track in the days ahead. And to uh, continue in the right teaching, and so even as we read this this morning, it is a, a lesson for all of us, although I will be referring to the fact that Paul's writing to new believers, it's really for all of us, and so there's nothing new here, nothing that uh, is new yet, there's nothing here that we should not always be considering in our own walk with Christ. Uh, he uh, Last week we began in verses 1 through 8. And reminded them that uh, these new believers, that Paul is praying always for them. Verse 4, verse, uh, verse four, the first phrase says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So there's been this uh, sense from Paul that there's a need to pray for these believers uh, in their faith and to uh, keep them in before the Lord's throne uh, on their behalf. Uh, and so we're going to pick it up today uh, at verse 9 and read on for a few verses here as he continues this uh, opening statement to them. He says, for this reason, and he's talking about their faith in Christ, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering and with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so he writes this phrase because the Colossians had received hope in the gospel. For this reason, he begins by saying, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. We said last week that new believers need constant nourishing and encouragement. All believers need that, of course. Uh, But uh, the Great Commission tells us in Matthew 28, don't need to turn. I'm just reminding us of the Great Commission we all know, verses 19 and 20, uh, that we are to make disciples of all nations. And then we're to go on to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them then to observe all things that I have commanded you. Uh, that phrase is what we call the process of discipleship. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, something that comes to us in a variety of ways uh, through many different people, I believe. 
in my life growing up in a uh, sort of a uh, uh, ministry home, if you will, uh, I was always confronted with someone confronting me about my faith. Uh, everyone in the church, I think, thought it was their responsibility to uh, bring me to salvation and bring me to discipline. I had a lot of discipline in my life as a young lad. Uh, a lot of uh, folks in the church who thought that because I was uh, the son of a staff person, I needed a little extra discipline. So uh, I took that once in a while. I had many folks try to uh, establish uh, faith in me, and that nothing was bad about that. I've had some confront me, some uh, correct me. Uh, some try to change me, uh, and uh, many of us have gone through that. And so that's, that's fair, that's okay. We should never accept, however, the idea that discipleship only flows through one person to one person. Uh, this idea that uh, you're going to be a discipler, and this is going to be a disciplee, and that so therefore this one person is going to just build into you all that there is to know about Christ. That's a fallacy, by the way. The discipler needs discipling as much as the disciplee does. I've never stopped needing to be discipled. Have you? Well, some of you are not sure about that. Uh, uh, we need to be discipled constantly. Until I get to glory, I'm still a disciple. I'm still learning, and I'm still growing. And no one arrives. Uh, Paul made that very clear when he talked in, in Philippians uh, 3 about the fact that you know, he's still growing. He's still heading toward the mark. He has not yet arrived, he said. So uh, all of us have that as our need. But obviously there are many ways that discipleship takes place. And I think there are reasons that a discipler is a good thing and a disciplee. But uh, there are many folks who are uh, investing in our lives and so on. There are many in this church who are discipling others in various ways. Right now our teachers in the back are discipling your kids. And they're teaching them about Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? What happens, though, is that the church sometimes defaults to this, that they think the church programs and leaders uh, in the church are the main feeders uh, to bring discipleship into people's lives. And I want to dispel that this morning. I think it's, it's an important fact that, yes, we do have those uh, who are investing in your life. And, yes, when you bring your kids to church, you would hope that your kids would grow in Christ at church. Right? We do want that. Uh, so we do have an expectation of that. But if we leave it to just that, that's where I'm going this morning, because I don't think that's right. Uh, the whole point of discipleship is something that begins at the earliest age. I know when we had our kids, the, one of the first things we did was we bought the uh, uh, book by uh, James Dobson on how to raise your kids, how to discipline your kids, and so on, and uh, we took that book in and read it and read it and then tried to apply things in that book with our own kids. And uh, you try to do things because you want your kids to grow up, not just uh, in a, a sort of in a, in a shell where they, you know, this little bubble where they learn everything and then they become this perfect Christian when it hatches. But you want your kids to be in an environment that nurtures them in a right way. And the world has an agenda over your kids as well. So the world also has an agenda over new believers. Uh, the world wants to uh, rob a new believer of their faith immediately. And so there are, are going to be attacks and issues. And Paul knew that. And that's what was happening in the Colossian church. So these new believers needed something. And so he begins by telling us that last week we saw this in verse 3, uh, that he's praying for them. And we said that they need prayer. New believers need prayer. All believers need prayer. But certainly young believers do. But then over here in verse 9, we see that he says the very same thing again. He says, uh, we do not cease to pray for you. And so it's obviously critical that uh, uh, this is going to take place uh, in a new believer's life. New believers need certain things. And I want to start by saying this. New believers or young believers or really all believers need spiritual feeding. But especially if you're young in the faith. And you need it mostly from those closest to you. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but uh, we have a lot of birds in our backyard. My wife loves birds. Uh, certain birds she doesn't like, so she's always saying, like, do you have a gun? We can shoot a couple of those birds. Because <laughs> I like other birds, and I don't like, you know, so I'm like, no, we can't be selective. Just let whoever lands in our yard, we're just going to treat them as equal, you know. But yeah, have you ever watched a mama bird? She, uh, 
she plops down on the ground and she looks around very jittery and she's looking for predators because we have a lot of them in our yard, evidently. A lot of cats, you know, around the neighborhood. And once uh, she plucks up that big, giant, juicy earthworm, that slimy, slithery, wonderful piece of steak, <laughs> then she flies up in her nest and she plops that thing in the mouths of those little baby birds for them to enjoy that big, juicy, slimy, squirmy earthworm. No, that's not how it happens. You know that I'm wrong. Mama bird eats the worm first, swallows it, then regurgitates it back up into a kind of a nice uh, uh, sort of juicy thing that... (laughs) To which she then feeds her young something that they can digest because they can't deal with a big slimy earthworm. So certain things have to come uh, in, a, in a young person's life or a young believer's life that are very important things. Uh, you know, as a, uh, uh, when I was as, growing up, of course, uh, I, had five, I had four siblings. Sorry, I had four siblings. I'm the fifth. And, uh, you know, when you, especially when you come into your uh, junior high years going into high school, uh, there are a lot of what and why questions, especially why. How many of you asked your parents why? Why can I do this? Why can't I do that? Why can't I say this? Why can't I go there? Why can't I have that friend? Why can't I? And uh, we did a lot of that in my day. And uh, typically, uh, uh, I'm sad to say in my generation, the response was typically uh, you just do. You just have to do it. Uh, and my parents often would not explain. And I'm, I'm, I wanted an explanation. Uh, and if it was uh, when I was in high school, uh, uh, now some of you, you can do all this stuff, and so you don't even relate. But in my day, we weren't allowed to do certain things. That's changed today. But in my day, my family didn't let me go to a dance. Now, there are many reasons I could sit here and tell you why they didn't let me. But I know one reason why is they didn't trust me. And I proved that over and over that I was not trustworthy. <laughs> so my parents knew that. But I can just tell you that oftentimes I'd say, why? And then they would tell me, well, just because we said so. And I'd say, yeah, but okay, but uh, my friends, I have three friends from church. They're going. Why can't I go? Well, that's their parents dealing with them. But you're our child, and we're just dealing with you. And that's the way it's going to be. And I'm like... I want to know why. What does the Bible say about that? I would pin my parents down, and I would never get a biblical answer, usually. Just the authoritative, we said so. And I think it's something that young people, younger people or younger believers need more than just, you know, the, the, the basic, uh, no, you can't do that. And so oftentimes churches that sort of base their doctrine on, Uh, A lot of legalism things that verify that you're a true believer by you don't do this and you don't do this, I think make a big mistake. And we don't have a system here of laws by which if you do this, you can serve here. There are some. But here's the thing. Believers need questions answered. They need certain terms explained. Uh, they need uh, structure uh, from, I, I want to know how the Bible is, why it is. How is it structured? This, why is it put together like this? And I think that's important for them to know. Why, what is the sacri- sacrificial system all about? Why don't we have a temple today? Why, why is a temple important? Uh, you know, I, I, I want to know uh, about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, who was Jesus before he was Jesus? I used to love to ask that question. Uh, What does it mean to repent? Why do we have to repent? What's happening when we pray? And I think that those are kinds of questions that new believers especially need answered uh, in the day and age that we live especially because so many have answers and those answers aren't necessarily correct. So new believers need spiritual feeding. And as I said earlier, new believers especially need prayer. And twice he's emphasized that here in just the opening of the first chapter. So uh, what should we be praying about for new believers? What should we be actually praying for if they need prayer? What's, what's the major prayer we should be asking here? 
And before I answer that question, let me just say that there's an assumption that I'm going to make this morning, and it's this, that we who are praying for others, that we ourselves are living in the pattern of, uh, of a spiritual disciple of Jesus Christ, because our prayers are going to be necessary to be effective. Effective prayers come from holy saints, Right? So Paul mentioned that in 1 Timothy 2.8, that men are lifting up holy hands. Uh, we know from 1 Peter 3.7 that if a husband and wife has a wrong relationship, something's not right, your prayers can be hindered. So it's vital that we are in a right place when we're praying for others. So what should we be praying for? Well, verse 9 begins that answer. The first thing we should be praying for, he says, is that... Uh, Uh, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray and to ask, and here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we're asking God to fill this person with knowledge, knowledge of his will. Uh, We want that to come through uh, wisdom and understanding. And this goes back to this issue I was talking about of expectations, uh, you know, what should I do to uh, respond in a way that would uh, be uh, uh, on the right track to being a, a right kind of believer and so on? And God has given us a standard by, why, by which we can actually know exactly what it means to be filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge is, it means that we would perhaps know something about the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Proverbs, the letters to the seven churches. He wrote the epistles, uh, 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 Paul did. So God has given us clear understanding of expectations in the Word of God. And he gives insight to us. What I like about our Lord is that he, he doesn't just give us rules and regulations. He gives us insight into what happens if you do or you do not uh, respond in a right way to his Word. So it's vital for us to know that as a new believer in Christ, that this person would, first of all, have knowledge of God's will, uh, to know what God wants, and to know that through wisdom and understanding. And that's going to come through his word. The second thing that we want to see here is in verse 10. He says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. And so the second issue, that we first be filled with knowledge, but then that we would walk worthy of the Lord. Now, we've been, uh, us guys, we've been to uh, walk worthy conferences over the years in Cleveland. Uh, we've, uh, we've had many, uh, all of us have had many uh, sermons on walking worthy and so on. But again, what's nice is that as Paul writing these new believers, he wants to be very clear in what he's saying. And so he's going to tell them how to walk worthy. And he's going to give five ways in this text of how we should walk worthy. And the first thing he says as we uh, talk about walking worthy is that we would fully please him. It's the first thing he says in, in verse 11 or verse 10, by fully pleasing him. That's the first way. Well, I, I, I was sitting down this week just contemplating how that happens. How do I actually know that I'm pleasing God? Well, all of you know this verse in Hebrews 11.5. Without faith, you can say it for me. It is impossible to please him. So the first issue of pleasing God is that I have to deal with faith. I must have some kind of faith going on here. And that, that text is, of course, be, would begin, I think it's sort of a two-part answer, that there's faith in God, which is saving faith. I need to have faith in him. If I'm going to please God, I, I have to have faith in him, especially in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the level one of having faith in him. But then there's this daily living in faith that I have to have in my life. If I really do believe in him, then to please him, I, I, I need to trust him. There's something about it when someone doesn't trust you that's very uh, awkward and I think very displeasing in many ways because you want people to trust you. And it's very difficult when someone does not give you that trust. And so here's the Lord who's given his life for us. And if we're struggling in our daily life with trusting him to meet our needs, trusting him to come to him in prayer, trusting him to, to sort of place our lives before him, uh, that, that can't possibly please him. So we need to have faith to please him. But not just faith. 
If I'm going to fully please the Lord, I must have obedience. Obedience is a re- requirement to please the Lord. I want you to see in, over in chapter in John chapter 14. Let me just read a couple of verses to you here that show this very truth. In John 14, as Jesus is speaking in verses 15 and 21, he says in verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or reveal myself to him. And that's definitely demonstrating a, 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 a pleasure in the Lord that he would be able to say, I love the person who's obeying me. Look in chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I mean, the Lord endeavored to please the Father, and at the same way, he says that by obeying and keeping commandments, it brings pleasure, uh, which is wonderful. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And so there's no question that there's a sense of pleasure to the Lord as we uh, choose to follow him and obey him and, and uh Keep his, keep his word. So a new believer walks worthy by pleasing him. Without faith, we, we need to have faith. We need to have obedience. But there's more than that. Because I believe that you can obey the Lord and not have the right heart. That's kind of what happened to the uh, Ephesian believers, isn't it? That's why in Revelation 2, they were rebuked. They were faithful. They were following God. They believed in the Lord. But he was critical of the fact that they had lost their heart for him. So this is a vital, important, uh, if I'm going to please the Lord, I must have a, a desire to seek and follow him, which I think comes from the right heart. And so uh, I, I wanted to throw out to you Ephesians 5, 9, and 10, because when I think about how I want to please the Lord, uh, there's this idea that I want to have this desire in my heart. And that desire to uh, seek and follow him is a desire to please him. In uh, Ephesians 5, verse 9, it talks about the fact, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Now, the NIV says finding out what is pleasing him. Uh, There should be a, a sort of a drive inside of us to want to know how I should please him, to do things that are acceptable to the Lord. And that comes from a right spirit in my heart. Uh, Paul talks in uh, 2 Timothy 2 about being diligent to uh, be a workman, uh, approved of God. That's the idea then. I I want to make sure that I'm I'm doing those things that please him, that he's approving of. And so that's another way to fully please him. So I walk worthy by pleasing the Lord through my faith, through my obedience, having a heart that desires him. And I think that there's still yet more. I think that if I'm going to fully please the Lord, that there must be a sense of dying to self. Uh, As a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable Service, So it's sort of a basic 101 faith. If, if I'm not dying to self daily, if I'm not putting myself sort of on the altar of God and saying, Lord, you're in charge of my life, that's what it means to die to self. It means let him be first. Let him allow himself to be who he is in your life, to be your Lord. I think that's critical. Our self-will, if it's placed on the altar, brings the Lord honor and blessing. And so that's another way to fully please him. So I need faith, obedience, a desire to seek him. And I need to have a sense of dying to self so that he can lead my life. That fully pleases the Lord, I believe. Back to our text in Colossians, he is talking about those things we should be uh, praying about. Uh, that a new believer walk worthy, and we saw that we should be fully pleasing him. But you'll see here as well, the next phrase in verse 10. Not only fully pleasing him, but being fruitful in every good work. If I'm going to walk worthy of the Lord, I need to be fruitful in every good work. Uh, I'm going to go back to Ephesians 5, 9. 
because it just says it for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth. My life needs to bear fruit like that. Goodness, uh, righteousness and truth. We said last week from the first few verses that these folks in verse six, it talks about coming out of their own life and testimony. There's this fruit that's bringing forth more fruit. You know, our, our lives as we follow Christ should, uh, you know, begin to sort of see some evidence of our life. And so there's this idea of fruit in my life, something that's happening. My, perhaps I'm changing some things. I'm adjusting things. I, uh, my, my, my verbiage, my speech might be better than it used to be. My attitude would be better than it used to be. I'm trying to be a better person and so on. And those are fruitful things that come from a changed life. But especially the fact that I'm not ashamed of Jesus and I might have a testimony that I'm going to share with someone because of what he's done in my life. And so I think it's critically important that our lives bear fruit that reveals that. That is another way that I reveal uh, that I'm walking worthy or trying to walk worthy. The next thing about walking worthy is in the same phrase again. He says, uh, increasing, it's the last phrase of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God, that I should be increasing. And this is where I, I want to just remind us that none of us has arrived as a disciple. We're all still supposed to grow. We're still in the growth mode. Uh, I, uh, I, I know how to fish. I know that you, uh, I know how to do certain things. I know how to tie hooks out of line. I know how to uh, you know, the, the fisherman's knot and so on. I know how to use lures. I know how to I, I, I get my, uh, I know how to de-weed my lure if it gets stuck in the weeds. I, I know all that little stuff that you kind of learn from dads and fishermen and so on. I know how to find fish. I usually know where fish might be. I can kind of guess the topography of a lake where they might be and so on. I don't want to waste a lot of time looking for fish when they don't know where I'm going. So, okay, so I, I might know a little bit about fishing, but I am a dumb dumb really, when it comes to fishing. When you go out with a pro, because a pro knows everything. No, you don't use that lure here. That's the wrong color. Uh, uh, no, those, that's too shiny. No, that's too dull. Uh, they just know that stuff, and so you want to go with the guys that really know this stuff. You ever watch these uh, guys? You ever watch these ads, and uh, they, they show you this new lure, and, they, uh, and, and it's, it's all happening, you know, in the, in the uh, places that sell that, that stuff, you know. And so they're, they're doing a demo, and they're pulling the thing through the gigantic fish tank. And the fish that hasn't eaten in three weeks is starving and chases this thing down and gobbles it up. And it's like, sold. And they sell you a bunch of lures. I mean, that's okay. But uh, I don't know if that's real or not, but I think it's a gimmick. But anyway, uh, the thing of it is, is that you're just realizing that we all need to increase our knowledge. We need, uh, we don't know enough. None of us do. Whenever somebody wants to debate me theologically about something, uh, I, I, th- there's a point where you, 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 if you don't win the argument, it's like we can't win here. And neither of us, I always want to say that neither of us really knows the answer. Uh, we, we think we do, but in our finite minds, we're missing a lot. So we should hope, I, I hope and we should hope that a new believer would receive in their life what Paul had recommended to the Ephesian saints in Ephesians chapter 1 when he wrote this statement to them. And this is what I think is so good for us is to know when we're praying for people, what we're actually praying for. I want people to increase in the knowledge of God. But what Paul said in Ephesians 1 really spells it out for us. So let me read this to you. It starts at verse 17. That they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, first of all, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation is this uh, understanding that there's something internal that happens in our life, uh, that, that God works in our life so that our inner being is desiring to grow in these areas. I, I, I want wisdom because I'm being driven by the Lord to, to desire that. I want revelation uh, in the knowledge of God. I want to know more than just uh, uh, what, what the Bible verse says. I want to know how it is affecting me, and I want to know it in a very personal way. Uh, that phrase goes on. Uh, the eyes of his or her understanding being enlightened. I want them to get it, to, to see it for themselves. That he or she would know the hope of his calling. 
if a, if a young person today, if you're younger today and you're a newer believer, perhaps, or a young believer, to actually have some idea of the hope of your calling, to know the, the, the depth of the hope of your calling is something that oftentimes we just kind of miss. Uh, to know that uh, there's this eternal uh, scope in your life that's, uh, that's above and beyond and around us and underneath us. We're completely in this sphere of, a, of the hope of his calling in our lives that, uh, that nothing can take that away. Nothing can change that in my life. Uh, I'm in a position with God that I have this hope so that nothing should intimidate me or get me off target of who I want to be in Christ. He goes on and says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Uh, to know what that means to us, and, and oftentimes we don't think about heaven that much. But it goes on and says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? When you walk into school or you walk into work or you're walking into the grocery store or whatever you're doing, or just walking through your own neighborhood, uh, there's oftentimes not this understanding of the exceeding greatness of God's power over your life. But God is over us and with us in such a personal way, protecting us and watching us, guarding us, keeping us. And nothing can take that from you if you understand that. Why, why does Paul want them to increase in the knowledge of God? Because there are those coming in who are telling them there's new knowledge and there's other things you need to know. And those of us who know God and know the truths of God are not going to be swayed by that. And so it's vital that we understand that. When he talks to the Colossians here, he tells them then in verse 11, as we go back to our text, he says this to them, that you need to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. So you need to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Uh, Charles Spurgeon made a statement that I thought was worthwhile. He said this, Bible study is the metal that makes a Christian. This is the strong meat on which holy men are nourished. This is that which makes the bone and sinew of men who keep God's way in defiance of every adversary. The Colossian believers were being bombarded by others coming in and they needed strength they needed to stand in their faith. They needed to know what their faith was for sure and stand strong in it. They did not have a written New Testament like we do. What they had was portions of the Old Testament and the testimony of others who told them about what Paul had taught about in Ephesus. And that's what they had. And so he's giving them some strong uh, meat themselves right now. But he's basically saying to them, uh, that you need to be strengthened with all might according to only according to the glorious power uh, of, of Christ. Nothing else. If we're going to stand uh, in this day today, you and I, uh, I, I think that we need a few things. I think we need to have discipline in our lives in this day. You know, you, you can't you can't just sort of relax and say, Christianity is just sort of this easy thing I can believe in. It's, it's wonderful. It's lovely. We're all friends. Uh, isn't it great to belong to the club called the church? Uh, we get to have meals together. We get to do things together. Uh, aren't those folks lovely? And kind of just sort of be that kind of Christian, which is okay, but it's not okay. Because we're vulnerable if that's how we think. Uh, Paul wants them to know the truth because it's serious for Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul talks about himself, and he says this. Uh, he talked about disciplining his own body, bringing it into subjection in order to avoid disqualification. That's Paul. I, I, I think that if Paul is concerned about his own self, that we ought to be concerned about our lives as well in such a way. So discipline of Bible study is important. We have all kinds of Bible studies in our church. If you aren't a part of one, you can be. Life groups are happening. I'd love to sell you into a life group. We have great life groups. We're going to be adding more and doing more of that in the fall. But being in a life group, being in our ladies' Bible study, our ladies had some great Bible studies this last year. 
And so maybe you want to do that. There's some guys doing Bible study together. There's always a, always a way to get into a Bible study, but you need that. And that will be a great help to you. Uh, the exercise of obedience is, is extremely important. We just learned that, that that's a way to please God. Uh, we've talked many times about wearing God's armor, Ephesians 6. And, and so obviously getting dressed spiritually, knowing that I'm, I'm ready and prepared for the, the enemy's attacks, because he will attack. I think it's kind of a daily thing. But there's something else. I want to go back to this verse and just look at something here that kind of gets read over. As he uh, talks about being strengthened with all might, the rest of the verse says, according to his glorious power, back in verse 11, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Christians need to be strengthened with all might. We know we're tapping into God's glorious power through his word. But why do we need that? Well, he says, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So we're going to be tested, and we need patience and the idea of long-suffering, and that's, that's vital for us. But this idea of, of joy then pops up, and I find that very interesting for us right now to understand that. Uh, and so uh, let me just pause on this for just a moment because we definitely need this in our lives. I know that I've preached on this many times. But to have uh, a sense of, of patience with people, to have a sense of long-suffering so that people know that I love them, no matter what comes my way, there's a... Uh, even if you feel like you might get hurt by somebody, there should be a response from us as believers in Christ that there's a long suffering that comes out of our life. There's a, a sense that that is going to be the overruling response that comes out of me instead of anger, instead of, uh, you know, sort of frustration that's impatient and, and gruff. Uh, but there needs to be a, a long suffering that comes out because we all understand we're all weak and we're all stumbling and we're all fallible. But I need to have that. But then, he, but then you'll notice that it's, it's conditioned with joy. It's, it's this unusual ingredient that is supposed to be evident in Christians' lives that makes us different from everyone else, really, in the sense of how we respond to life and so on. Joy should be a dominating thing in our life, a, a, a very domineering uh, emotion in our life, if you will, uh, an act that comes out of our lives, an attitude that uh, uh, reveals to people that we are uniquely different. What does joy have to do with strength? I, I believe today, if, if for nothing else, I believe that Satan is having a heyday, robbing believers of joy. Uh, around the world. Uh, it, it's, it's that one thing that if he can rob us of joy, that we'll get our eyes off of Christ, we'll get our eyes on ourselves, we'll get our eyes on the world around us, and it will cause us then to not look to the one who has the hope for us and, and the blessing for us and the reward for us and the, and the constant uh, uh, presence with us that we need to have joy is such a key thing the world is uh, getting slammed we all know it and I'm not talking about just one war I'm talking about all around the world and especially even here a believer's joy does not come from things Joy does not come into your life because of relationships. Joy does not come from wealth. And joy does not come from comfort. And I'm naming the things that are the highest things on the ideal list of most Americans. And, and so these things are not rewarding anyone today. And people wonder why. Uh, even Christianity isn't working for them because they've got it flipped around. They, they have Jesus, but Jesus is sort of like mixed in with all these things. As long as these things are working in my life, then Jesus is great. But take away 
uh, relationships or wealth or comfort or things in my life. And let's see where our faith is in Christ then. The source of joy is supposed to be Christ Jesus on his own within my life, right? John 4.14, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well who you all know had a pursuit in her life of relationships and wanting to have certain things in her life, especially certainly comfort, which she's not really having, but I'm sure that's what she wanted. But Jesus basically told her that he had one thing to give that he offers to all of us today. A satisfying fountain of water which would come from internally within us that we would never again thirst. He's talking about fulfillment and he's talking about joy. Joy that uh, is that which overwhelms us. When Paul in Philippians 4 talks about uh, rejoicing and he's just, look, he's coming in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He's coming right on the heels of talking about two women who are having a battle in their lives. And he's identifying the fact that these two ladies are are at ends with each other. And so as he he says, I implore these two, Euodia and Syntyche, I I implore you both to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you, uh, true companion, help these women who uh, labor with me in the gospel. These These are women who served alongside with Paul, who are now battling. It means that even in our own church, if, first of all, if you're serving alongside the Apostle Paul and now you've got a rift with somebody else on the team, you know how easy it must be to have a problem. And if this church has a problem like this, or you just kind of don't like somebody else, you know, maybe you don't like their personality, there's things that they might have said that you heard in the foyer that just drove you crazy and you don't like that. Uh, So we all respond to things like this. And so here's Paul saying that. But what does he say to them in verse four? He doesn't say solve the issue. He doesn't say, uh, let's sit down and talk this out and see who's right and who's wrong. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. Because when you start nitpicking with other people and arguing about things and fighting about things, those things will never get resolved. I've never won an argument like that. I might have conquered the person in the, in the moment by out yelling them, but I haven't won. But look what he says. This is our responsibility. When we're having issues with relationships and people in our lives, or we're, we're frustrated because the world is a mess, what is he telling us? Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he knows how much we don't do this. So he reemphasizes it. Again, I say rejoice. Because that's the only solution to your problems with relationships and people and the world, really, is that you find joy in Christ. He's not talking about being happy about the situation. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. So find your answer there, only in him. And then he says, again, I say rejoice. And here he is talking to the Colossians now, and he's basically saying this, that You can be strengthened with all might. You need to have might. You need to have might through God's glorious power. You need patience. You need long-suffering. But you absolutely need joy. There's nothing more uh, nauseating to me than somebody who uh, is patient and long-suffering. And it's just condescending. It's not real. But Paul wants us to have joy. Because real sincere joy coming out of your life makes these things real. So Paul is calling these Colossians to understand. You've got some enemies in the church. You've got some issues going on. You need to be strong. You need to be patient. You need to be long-suffering with these folks. But you need joy to dominate. Otherwise, you're going to be splitting the church. You're going to have all kinds of issues. So he knows that they need this. It brings us to verse 12. Because after all this is said and done, if we're going to walk worthy, we also need to be giving thanks to the Father. Look at verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has, and then he goes through a list here. So I'm going to pull from this list, just one more list that comes right out of the text. Giving thanks to the Father. Uh, uh, Several things. How do we give thanks? What are we thanking him for? Well, the first thing is who has qualified us. I want to give thanks to the Father. Spend my mind and my time on that. Uh, Who has qualified me? 
Who has qualified you if you have given your life to Christ? Qualified us for what? To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Oh, if I understood that uh, and I applied that into my life, I've been qualified and I have done nothing to deserve that, folks. We're qualified by the Lord himself through our faith in him. So really the only qualification is that we believe in him. Can you imagine that? You're a sinner in Christ. You're a sinner outside of Christ. You've, you hear about Jesus and you realize that in his grace, he's reaching out to you. And so you say in faith, I believe in you. And immediately you're qualified by the Lord to have a partaker in the inheritance of the saints. Yes, we teach that here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace, you are saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We, we, we know that that's the, the fact for us. So it's, it's wonderful that we have that truth. And then this idea of inheritance is interesting, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. We all have that to draw from, and no, no one here really knows what that, the full extent of what that means. And we can say it's heaven, but it, it, there's much more than that. But what I think is interesting is that David wrote in way back in Psalm 16, verse 5, David mentioned inheritance by saying this, the portion of his inheritance and his cup. In other words, he was just saying, uh, that's all I'm interested in is the portion of his inheritance and his cup. Uh, what, What David's talking about is that David is concerned with nothing else than the fact that God himself is enough for me. He's my portion and he's my cup, is what he's saying. God's enough. When I talk about inheritance, I I only have some clues about what that might be, but I certainly know for a fact that I have the presence of Jesus Christ. I get to see the one who loved me and gave his life for me and be with him face to face and hear him welcome me home and to have uh, him and all the fellow believers around the throne of God all there for the very same reason, all who've been saved by faith, uh, uh, by grace through faith. And we're all there together praising him. And that is an inheritance that sounds unbelievable. I'll take that. He has qualified us. Back in our text in, in verse 12. Uh, He has qualified us to be partakers. And then verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. And so I give thanks to him because he's qualified me. I give thanks because he's delivered me from the power of darkness. Uh, from uh, uh, the power of darkness is something that is uh, obviously is for eternity. I'm going to be with Christ in heaven. But it's also for this very life I'm living now. He delivers us from all kinds of things that are happening in this world around us. And he's wanting to deliver someone here even today who's perhaps feeling like you're in a world of darkness, just what you're going through and how you feel like there's no hope and there's no answer. And he's waiting to deliver you from that. And he promises to do so. First Peter 2 verse 9 says, uh, To him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now, but are now the people of God. That's who we are because of what he's done for us. Amen. So we give thanks to him for that. He's qualified me. He's delivered me. And then I love this next little word in, in, in the same verse. In verse 13, he's delivered us from darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. All you Star Trek fans. He has conveyed us. That word means uh, transported. It actually means, in the modern English, it means he's beamed us up. (laughs) Beamed us up and out. I like that. The fact is that he has done this wonderful work in my life. So when I'm praying, I can say, Lord, you, first of all, you qualified me. And I, I, I did nothing to deserve this. But then I can say, Lord, you delivered me from darkness because at one time I didn't even see or get or understand this. And you've done that. You've delivered me. You've taken me from darkness to light. But Lord, then you have conveyed me. You have transported me into the kingdom of the son of his love. I know we're here. Everything says I'm here in space and time. I'm aware that I'm here. Uh, I'm aware that you're there. But we are actually a part of something else, even as we sit here. We are a part of uh, 
of a place that I want to call home today. And it's not here. And we're just basically temporarily transferring ourselves through here. But this is not where we're going to stay. This is not who we are. And the minute you draw your last breath, you are with him in glory into this place where he has conveyed you. You are already there. You're a member. You're a citizen. You are just waiting to be delivered. (laughs) And when you understand that, it just takes the fear away of what might happen in my life. I was talking with somebody this week, and they were talking about death, and they just said, I'm not afraid to be in heaven. I'm just afraid how I'm going to get there. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, The amazing thing about our God is that he even shields us from things that we, as as aware and awake humans, are fearful of. Uh, God has this wonderful thing that he's done with our bodies, that when something traumatic is about to happen, he puts us in shock. Whatever God does, I just know that I'll be instantly with him, and all the fear of that is just removed by by placing my trust in that. If I don't believe these things, you see how we would then not please him because we would shortchange what he's doing in our lives. Oh, we're not done yet. Look at verse uh, 14. Something else is happening here. We need to give thanks to the Father whose Son has redeemed us. Verse 14, the first part. Through his blood, it says. He has redeemed us through his blood. So we are purchased possessions. That the word redeem is he's paid for you. You were bought and paid by the Son of God when he died and you placed your faith in him. His death, his bloodshed has now become the purchase price to uh, claim you. You're his property. Aren't you glad for that this morning? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter talks about the fact of us being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We don't think much about our own blood being precious until we're losing it. And suddenly it becomes important to us. Jesus Christ, the opposite of us, came and gave his blood for us. He wanted his blood to be shed for us. Every drop. Meant for you and I to cleanse us from sin. Today you need to know that he's done that for you. We're not done yet. Verse 14 goes on. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There are still some Christians, some sitting here today, you still can't forgive yourself. You're still punishing yourself for things that you know you fall short. You, you struggle on certain things that are controlling in your life. You pray, and sometimes these things don't always leave us. We feel like sometimes a victim of our own weaknesses and our own failings. And Jesus Christ, who you've heard us say, and it's true, has paid for that sin that you're struggling with. And he has already forgiven you for the sins that you're struggling with. He calls us in 1 John 1, 9 to call on him and to confess our sins. And he faithfully and wonderfully forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so even Paul, when he talked about the fact in Romans 7, about the fact that I struggle with the things I should do and the things I shouldn't do and the things I shouldn't do, I do. And the things I should do, I don't. And, and he's, he's saying that to all of us and he's saying that to himself. But then he ends that whole section by saying, thanks be to Jesus Christ. <laughs> because if it was up to us, we would still be condemning ourselves about every other day. But we are free and clean and forgiven if we placed our faith in him and he's already paid and he's that that payment is an eternal payment it keeps paying and paying and paying so every time we fail and fall as believers in Christ it's already been paid I wonder this morning if there's somebody here today who'd say I I've uh, 
I'm just struggling in my faith and I, I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to believe that. Well, that's what his word is for. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad? <laughs> so listen, will anyone's discipleship ever actually be complete this side of eternity? No way. No, no. We're all needing to continue to grow and I need to uh, make sure that we know this. And frankly, uh, we could never exhaust all that there is to know about God. So the, there is a basic level of discipleship that I want to say uh, this morning. There's a basic level of discipleship that all believers ought to have. And with the Lord's help, I have three things that I'm praying for for this congregation. I hope and pray that, first of all, our families in our church will seriously assume first responsibility for their children to know the truth of Christ and how to follow him. It's your responsibility to teach your kids before it's mine. I'm just here to help. But as families, what will make us uniquely different from most of the world is that we take that serious. Secondly, I'm praying that our church teachers and our church leaders will have a divine impact upon all of us. When I slide in and listen to somebody else teaching, I want to be lifted to the throne. I want to be encouraged through the word of God. I need things in my own life just like the rest of us. And I sometimes am relying on some of you who are doing the teaching to be an, an inspiration to me, to lead me into truth. You understand we all need that. But I'm asking God to do that through you, that Christ will be so evident in this place that all of us will have an insatiable desire to know him more and more. And finally, I'm asking God to do this, that others outside this church body will be drawn to the Savior through our lives and testimonies. God help us. This is what it means to be completing the Great Commission. And may God help us to do our part. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need him today. You need him. I'm telling you, you need him. And he's waiting for you to call on him. He's waiting to demonstrate who he is and what he's done for you. He's waiting to open your eyes spiritually to allow you to see him in all his glory but he's waiting for you to call and say that you need him. And if you can't do that, you'll never know him. Because that's what he requires. That's the only requirement God has today is that you simply call on him in faith and say, Lord, I believe in you. I need you. And he's waiting to demonstrate all that he has for you. Let's pray together. Father, your word is true and good it is effective it is powerful it gives us clarity allows us to see who you are it's your gracious gift to us so that we could actually know you Lord thank you for providing a clear sense of direction a pathway to you that you are the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through you, the Lord Jesus, through your death and resurrection. Thank you for showing us that and demonstrating that for us. Thank you for allowing us to have access to you through your grace. Lord, today I ask for your mercy over those who do not know you who are here today or listening on TV. I just ask your mercy over them that you would speak to hearts in a way that grips their heart and draws them to you, Lord, in the powerful way that you work. It's your word that does that. It's your gospel that does that, not our persuasion. And Lord, we leave that in your hands and we ask you'll do a mighty work in someone's life. For the believer in Christ, Lord, who's
perhaps just not grown like they have or like they should have, or they are just in a wrong place today where they should not be. I ask for your power over their lives to convict and to steer them in the right way and bring them back by your grace. Lord, help us as the faithful believers to stand firm in this day, stand on truth, to not be shaken, to not be swayed by anyone else. Give us a firmness because our faith is in Jesus Christ, the truth that we need today. Keep our church uh, away from the voices that are trying to distract and detract us from the truth of the gospel. Give us wisdom in how to speak and act in a day that's so complicated and everything that we say is turned around. And Lord, we walk in your light and in your word and we praise you for your presence. We lift you up now in this place, giving you thanks for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And we pray this in Christ's precious name. 